Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. All right. Episode 11. Yeah. Excited to have you. Thanks for tell having me. Olivia Mason. So tell us uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah. So I'm Olivia Mason. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a sex addiction therapist. Um, I work over in the Ruston office for Clint Davis Counseling. I just came on over there. Um, excited to have you. I know. I'm so excited to be a part of it. Absolutely. Um, the further I get into it, the more excited I get, um, just because there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of good stuff happening over there. Um, and the team's just meshing really, really well, I would say. so. I know it's fun to come yeah. over and kind of see all of y'all being tech grads and having this kind of connection mm-hmm. to this community already. It's yeah. been fun to do. We joke whenever we try to have staff meetings. Like this week, I'm having to put together an agenda because we never get done what we need <laughs> to get done. So it's been really nice just to, I would say for myself, I won't speak for them, um, but just to be able to mesh right into a team and um, yeah, being all tech grads, all from the area, living there. So it's been fun. Yeah. So MFT, that was one thing I was excited to talk to you about mm-hmm. is... Um, you know, I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I know you're an LMFT. Um, and, you know, so talking about systems theory, before we get into that, tell me kind of why you became a therapist and why specifically MFT. Yeah. Give us the dirty. <laughs> I think um, probably a couple of years ago, whenever I first started grad school and going into MFT and getting started with that, my response would be, I don't know. Um, but now I look at it more like a happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um because I started out with my undergrad in kinesiology. So I was at tech. I did kinesiology for three and a half years. Um, and it, I, I wanted to be a physical therapist and then I wanted to be an occupational therapist. And then I started realizing, cause I worked at a clinic over there. I started realizing, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in why the kids aren't wanting to eat the pudding or why, um, the sibling may hide in the corner when their sibling comes out from therapy, Mm. you know, so it was just, I started realizing I'm more interested in really the ins and outs of what's going on versus just, are they tying their shoes correctly? So then I started looking into psychology, really thought I wanted to do professional counseling. Um, and all the while I'm literally failing out of my kinesiology. <laughs> <laughs> like whenever I say failing, like with an F. Yeah. Um, and so it was just such a clear, this is not what you're meant to do. Like this is not going to happen for you. Um, <laughs> that was me in all of my biology classes. Yeah, I, I dropped chemistry multiple times. I refused to take math until I was like a junior in college. It just was not going to work. And so it was that just this really clear, it's not going to happen for you. And so... I just changed courses. My parents were very excited <laughs> about me changing majors my senior year um, of college. And 
so you know finished out a couple of extra quarters late in for LPC programs um, and didn't get in to any of them so I just took a year off um, actually moved to Austin Texas worked for I thought I wanted to do applied behavioral analysis mm. worked at a clinic in Austin doing that and um, the same thing kept coming up for me of I see these kids a lot of kids with special needs and I I see these kids coming in getting four or five hours of therapy a day and the parents and the siblings just leave. Mm -hmm. So then I got to thinking, well, who's helping them? Right. Um, And that's what really got me into marriage and family therapy and seeking out those programs. And again, it was one of the situations where I didn't get into any LPC programs because I really think I was meant to do marriage and family therapy. And I'm really passionate about it um, and really passionate at you know, what we're going to talk about today, looking at the system, because, um, you know, I think often there's an identified patient, um, which is what brings people through the door, but this whole system can be healed. Mm -hmm. Um, and the whole system can use the work and it really, really be healthy and really be helpful. Explain kind of, uh, to listeners what identified patient is. Give like an example of that. Yeah. So the identified patient, um, would be essentially, for example, uh, you have a family and um, there's a troubled child. Mm-hmm. And so the family may come in and say, hey, my teenage son is really acting out in school. He's skipping classes. Here, treat him, make him better. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like this is what I would call. And I think most MFTs would call an identified patient right. and a client. IP, yeah. yeah. the Good old IP. Yeah. Um, and so that's really what gets them through the door. And what sometimes can be difficult for families is to realize that they aren't the only individual that may need a little help or a little tuning up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I mean by identified patient. Yeah. And so in psychology and counseling, I mean, there's MFTs not as old as like the LPC or right. Right, systems theory, which we're going to get into in a second. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, we treated people as individuals. Right. We saw them as like their story. We want to validate that and expose that and see that as a hundred percent true. And, you know, kind of the Carl Rogers, like we want to give you a hundred percent, you know, leadership in this role mm-hmm. and sit with you and support you in whatever you want. Right. Um, and I would say systemic work, right. has changed that to where it's, we still want to do those things and validate, but we also want to realize that, there are other things coming into the room, whether they're in the room physically or not. Right. And I would say with the marriage and family therapy work, I don't only work with couples and families. Mm -hmm. I work with individuals too, just like you're saying, I just see them systemically through their system. And I know we'll talk about that in just a second, but that's how I I treat the quote unquote problem Mm -hmm. is looking around them instead of just at them. Yeah. So explain that. What systems theory and kind of how does that uh, play into counseling yeah so I know that's a lot to explain we got plenty of time yeah let's do it (laughs) I have like all of my books running through my head from grad school um so systems theory is really exactly that it's looking at the system um I like the terminology of systems theory because it can expand outside of just the family Mm -hmm. um it started with a group of middle-aged white dudes out in California just sitting around and it started out pretty scientific the idea of systems and um, fortunately we have shifted a lot from the thinking that they had because a lot of the problems was placed on the mother Mm -hmm. of the family and and that's where they got started was I have this child that's displaying these symptoms well let's look at the mom and see what they did wrong Mm -hmm. I mean that's very 
in a nutshell yeah, yeah. what's happening. Um, some MFTs are probably like keeling over out there, <laughs> right. um, but they'll be all right. <laughs> that's what, that's essentially how it got started. And the idea of looking outside of just the individual, fortunately it's expanded a lot more. Um, and there's been a lot more pioneers in the, the field to be able to look at, um, you know, okay, f- for sure this happens within the family and also we need to look at what else is surrounding the individual, what else is surrounding the couple, the family. So it's looking at uh, what I would refer to as a foo or a family of origin, mm-hmm. mom, dad, you know, kids. Um, and then they also started looking at culture and religion and socioeconomic status. And I think especially in the modern world, because so many people now live away from families, whereas back whenever all this got started, it was pretty close-knit. People stayed close by. Um, you know, I, now I think you can look at the workplace and the community that you find yourself in. So Right, because your family of origin might not be what you're surrounding yourself with in 2020. It might be friends. It might be, you know, other people. Right, but you still find yourself in your family. Oh, absolutely. Which is the, the whole part of systems theory. Yeah, yeah. even if you leave at six. Right. Like, even if you get taken away at six or, five, or seven or eight. Right, yep. You still find yourself you know, definitely in your family and you can create what you want with that. And also, um, because I worked at a residential addictions facility before coming here and I would tell the patients all the time, you didn't leave your family outside of these doors. You brought them in here with Mm -hmm. you. So, so often people will find themselves, uh, you know, say in the workforce, you work for a large corporation, whatever the scenario. And, um, all of a sudden this coworker that you have is driving you absolutely bonkers right? So maybe you come in and talk to your MFT, who's your therapist, and they may say, well, who do they remind you of? Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh, that reminds me of my dad. My dad used to talk to me like that. So you don't leave your family when you leave your family. No, it's so true. And I think bringing that awareness to people gives them, you know, empowers them to realize that Mm -hmm. they're not in their family anymore and that Mm -hmm. they can step out of those roles. But yeah, it's super easy to fall back to it. Right. I think if anybody thinks about it, it's like, have you ever gone and spent, you know, been married and had a family of your own? And then you spend three days or more with your family. And before you know it, you've kind of fallen back into right. those old roles and patterns. And now you're acting like the kid. And Well, and it is. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going home for Thanksgiving. And then all of a sudden you're back in your childhood bedroom or, um, you know, the parent says, get something out of the cupboard or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden you feel 15 again. Uh-huh. Right. Because there are certain things that have happened within the family that maybe you just haven't worked through quite yet yeah um, or how maybe you need to or would be best for you so it's just really interesting to look at it that way and um, I think that's why I feel so passionate about it is because it brings a lot of different aspects to the individual and really allows what I love about systems theory is it allows you to see um, as opposed to just the problem that comes in into the room right as a therapist I am able to see them as a three-dimensional being Right. There's a lot surrounding them, not just this 2D. Okay. You have anxiety. Here's coping skills or whatever it may be. It's let's look all around you. Yeah. You're a lot less, you know, we talk about this on all the podcasts, but you're Mm -hmm. a lot less likely to just treat symptoms. Right. It's not linear, I guess is a good way of saying it. Like A plus B equals C. It's not that. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, shoot. There's a Y all the way down the road. (laughs) Maybe we need to bring up here. For sure. Um, So. Yeah, I think, interesting. I think the tough part, and I think, you know, my goal for today is, is when people come in, they don't even know mm-hmm. that that's a thing, mm-hmm. right? They have right. never thought about being in a system or how that system has affected them. They think 
that their current behaviors and you know symptoms and problems are just directly related to them. Mm -hmm. Right, and for any therapist, it doesn't have to be an MFT, right? Any therapist, LPC, LCSW, whatever you may have behind your name, I would guess more than likely you've had that client, right? If you're a therapist sitting in the room that says, my dad used to do exactly that, or I had this teacher, right? It, people, um, there are other people sitting on the couch with them. Absolutely. They aren't alone. And, you know, if you know that, then as a clinician, you're aware of how you play that role. Mm -hmm. You know, how you as a mm -hmm. male or a female or your age, you know, can trigger right. that dad issue or that mom issue and right. you can help repair it. Yeah. There have been plenty of times, you know, like I said, I was at a residential facility that I was the wife, that I was the mom, um, that I was that aunt right that was scolding to them or whatever it may be so as the therapist it is important to remember that aspect because if the individual is talking to you and and you're saying things and, and you're consulting with your colleagues and think i don't know why this rapport is just not building well maybe it's because you remind them of mom and they don't have it with her mm -hmm. um, so it's just a great way to have that conversation and to model what healthy relationships are and really honestly to help them rebuild and repair the client so yeah and, and I, th I think that that's a lot of the problem with our society right now with the problems that we're having is the general population i mean as therapists a lot of us don't know about systemic mm -hmm. theory and then we're the ones supposed to be helping people with their coping with their family with their issues that are playing out in the work or at home and then we see this on twitter or social media or whatever you know we see issues shootings police issues systemic racism and mm -hmm. people are denying it or talking about it inappropriately because they don't even know, understand, right? You know, causality versus correlation, or you know, any of those kind of things. Right. And the other big piece of systems theory is those things travel through the family. Mm -hmm. So the trauma can travel through the family, right? Um, the belief systems can travel through a family. So that's the other big part of systems theory that, especially myself and my work that I look at with my clients is what's traveled through. And I think we'll get to this, but how can we shift that if you choose to shift it? Because our families give us a lot of gifts. We don't have to keep them all. We can set some down. Yeah. Um, so that's the way I like to describe it. Yeah. I love uh, the last, I mean, it's probably only been what, four or five years since kind of epigenetics has mm -hmm. really been a heavy focus. And uh, at the CSAT symposium a couple of years mm -hmm. ago, you know, they came out with these new brain scans that are like MRIs, but they're even better. And you can you can measure neurology to neurology. And she was talking about uh, creating methylene in your brain and how you methylate when you love people, when you connect, when you exercise, when you eat great vegetables, when you get mm -hmm. enough sleep, and that that heals your brain and heals your body. Right. Well, and it's looking at as well, because I do have that history of working with individuals with addiction is... I mean, you'll look, you'll see that where, okay, if dad, grandpa, mother, whoever has addiction, the child is more likely to have that as well. But it's because a part of the brain has been impacted and that travels through the family. Mm -hmm. Trauma does the same thing. It impacts the brain. And so then it travels through the family. Yeah, it does. And people, people, it's a confusing, nuanced thing to talk about, but mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's the nature versus nurture debate. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, people ask all the time, well, I'll, you know, and, and we use it for as an excuse. It's like, oh, well, my dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic, so I was destined to be an alcoholic. Right. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily right. true. You were predisposed. Sure. You know, I kind of describe it as people having a dimmer switch. 
you know, mm-hmm. and that they're born with this dimmer switch. And that d- dimmer switch is preset based on three generations worth of stuff. Mm-hmm. What their great-grandparent drank, what they ate, what they experienced in their life, whether racism or abuse or poverty, that trickles down. And then as a kid, that that dimmer switch can be turned left or right mm-hmm. and make you pre or uh, more likely to do one thing or the other. But then, depending on what your parents do and their own recovery, like mm-hmm. they could turn that one way or the other depending on what they do. So the nurture, right. in my opinion, has way more to do, not in every case, but in most cases, than the, the nature, that you're not necessarily preset to become an addict. Right. You're just more likely to if you get abused and that cycle never changed. Right, and it's the same with looking at, say, for example, if there's domestic violence within a family. Boys, if they witness that, they don't even have to experience the abuse. Just this is how it travels is boys are more than likely going to become they have a much higher likelihood than females to become a perpetrator Mm -hmm. of domestic violence just because they watched that right right it didn't necessarily even have to happen to them they just watched it and it's that nature versus nurture thing right that child may may have not have even been born with a violent bone in their body however that's what they witnessed and so things switch around things change and unfortunately things happen and, and it's just interesting to look at um, often whenever the client comes into the room, it's, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Right? And so then it's, okay, well, what can, what can we do different? How can we shift things around so that this is what you witnessed parents doing? This is what you're doing as a parent because your parents did the best with they, what they knew and how they knew how to do things. So how can you learn something different and do the best that you know how to do? Absolutely. I think the other thing that makes it really lets me know that it's legitimate is that people don't really want to do that. Right. You know, that everybody kind of wants to come in and go, okay, my parents were fine. My childhood was fine. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but a large majority will say, I had great parents. They Mm -hmm. loved me. They were fantastic. Like this has nothing to do with my parents. Right. And then we start talking to them about their system. Right. Well, and a lot of people also will say, because I may bring up the word trauma, they may say, well, I don't have trauma. I didn't go through a car wreck or I wasn't abused or whatever it may be. It's not so much about the traumatic event. It's about the negative belief system or negative messages that the individual took from that event, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, it's kind of what we're going to talk about, normal versus healthy. I think a lot of people come in and say, I mean, I've talked to so many mothers and I'm like, uh, I had somebody recently and she was like, oh, well, you know, yeah, he's 13. He watches porn, but every boy watches porn. Right. I mean, I have this conversation. You're you're right. It is normal for teenage mm-hmm. boys to watch porn. Is it healthy? Right. Like, let's talk about why it is in society that now it's very normal. Because it hasn't always been. Right. Um, and so then you have to dive into those conversations. But again, normal doesn't mean healthy. Mm-hmm. Just because someone is divorcing doesn't mean because all of their friends are you have divorced parents that they're going to be fine because that's normal. Right. The interesting part about divorce is if say within your community, it doesn't even have to be your family. If um, you see a friend or a friend couple get divorced, then you yourself are more than likely to get divorced. That's that normalized thing, Mm -hmm. right? They were going through a difficult time. We're going through a difficult time. Here's their answer. Here's our answer. Yeah. Um, For me, I personally don't like to use the word normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even gone back and forth between normalizing versus validating. Right. um, Because... I mean, I, you'll hear this all the time, but normal is just a, 
a thing on a washing machine, yeah, right? The normal cycle. And so um, I like to look more and use more language of healthy versus unhealthy. For sure. Because especially if, right, you have a client in your room or you're just an individual talking to your, your people, your friends, and people start talking about what's normal and that wasn't your experience, that may feel really shaming mm-hmm. um, and that may feel really isolating. And so I like to shift the language to, okay, this was healthy for me. This was unhealthy for me. Yeah. Because each individual in their family of origin, um, it's like I said, our family gives us gifts. And some of those can be really helpful and we can really learn from those. And also some of those have been really harmful. Um, I think, unfortunately, the family system you grew up in I grew up in whoever that was their normal. Mm -hmm. Right. And I say pretty often is just because it was normal for you doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you deserved. Absolutely. And so it's just shifting some of the language away from that to help shame reduction, to help, um, allow the individual, the couple, whoever it may be that, that, you know, I would be treating to let them know that they aren't alone, Mm -hmm. um, that their experience isn't an isolated event. It isn't something that they've only experienced. It may be unique. And also there are going to be other people out there that, that can relate to that because they've also gone through healthy and unhealthy families. Yeah. I think it's funny when we feel like we're very, you know, I think shame leads us to thinking we're the only ones, right? You know, I'm uniquely broken is a phrase I use all the time. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, you're not uniquely broken. Mm -hmm. Like there's millions of people who do your exact same negative coping, right? It may not be normal, Statistically, it might not be the the curve, you know, like it might not be in the middle, but it's definitely not. You're not alone. Right. And that's why I try to shift away from some of that is to help um, to help them know that you aren't alone in this. It may feel like you are. And also you aren't. Oh, yeah. All at the same time. That's super helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, people in counseling come in and they're understanding and ideas of what everybody else goes through. Mm -hmm. And you hear it all the time. People are like. Well, you know, I did this to my kids and I turned out fine. You know, my parents did this and I turned out fine. Right. And I'm like, well, you're an alcoholic and you've been divorced three times yeah. uh, and you have a terrible relationship with your, your kids, but you're right. fine. Sure. Your, your bank account looks fine. Yeah. Like what's fine. Right. But what else is that? Yeah. And so I think that isolation piece and thinking that you're fine and, you know, I say all the time as a therapist, it's really difficult to hate people from up close. And so once you get close to them, you know, whether that's me as their therapist or them as the client trying to recon- to connect with people after feeling shameful or isolated or I'm fine, quote unquote, um, you know, it's much easier to get close to people if you allow yourself. Um, you know, and I think the other piece with the healthy versus unhealthy and normal part is that um, often for individuals, for families, often the... the the source of fear is their solution to fear. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I know that the first time I heard that, I thought, okay, hold on. I need, to, I need to think through that for a second. And that's the thing. So if you grow up in that family of like we just talked about of abuse or, um, you know, really covert negative messages, whatever those may be, oftentimes the child will still continue to go back to that parent or mm-hmm. go back to that person. Because while there's been fear placed there or negative messages sent there, they've also learned, okay, this is how I cope with it and this is how I deal with it. So that client that's alcoholic, going through a divorce, struggling, that's what they saw as their solution to fear, even though there's so much fear there. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's so important to look at the system 
because we're looking both at the source and what they've viewed as solutions. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because you have to get to the root issue. Right. You know, and the root issue usually comes from childhood. Right, because that's their normal. Right, and that's all, all we know. And mm-hmm. so, you know, a lot of times, I had a session last week, and we were talking about conversation in marriage, and, and I said, well, here, let me give you an idea of how this conversation could go. And so I said it, you know, and I've done this a hundred times, but, mm-hmm. you know, the person just broke down, and, you know, it was like, I never have thought that that was an option. Right. You know, and so if your only experience at home growing up is conflict, is anger, you either, you know, replicate that and think that's what you have to do, or you run so hard away from it that you don't know how to have healthy conflict. Mm -hmm. So then you just avoid everything Mm -hmm. and you don't realize that you're now avoiding in your marriage because you think that if you have conflict, you're going to be like your dad or you're going to be like your mom and it's going to bring up Mm -hmm. all this stuff and... Because, again, we found our families. Yes, for sure. Right. And I think that I feel pretty strongly in this that uh, people couple for a reason, especially if there hasn't been any, you know, therapy or self-exploration or things like that. Um, I've worked with a number of men that I've heard them say, I married this woman because she reminded me of my mother. Yep. And in my head, I'm like, oh, shoot. Yeah. I'm about to <laughs> rock your world. It's about to be a mess right now. <laughs> like, here's this book from Ken Adam. You yeah, know, yeah. that's a good little CSAT joke. But, um, you know, I just hear that and I think, oh, my goodness, we're about to get into some stuff that you are not going to want to talk about because there's probably, right, you couple for a reason. There's probably a reason you coupled with that person because there's something from your past that you are working on healing. Um, and unfortunately the other person can't do that. That's something that the individual has to do. You may be able to do that with that person. Right. But it's just being aware that that's what's going on. That's good. That's good mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. The early you know, Freud and all those, they didn't have everything wrong. There's definitely some, right. uh, lots of things that play into why right. we do things from maternal and paternal mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about like, you know, what is using the word normal, but let's, let's use like some typical, I guess, struggles for families in general, like what are some things that you see or that we see as clinicians just mm-hmm. that are that are kind of like the average problems, I guess? Yeah. So I guess that kind of goes back to like what brings people into the room, yeah, that identified absolutely. piece. So again, it's looking at, I, I think probably the biggest thing whenever the root comes out after people get into the room is vulnerability. So again, within the family, often the parents have learned how to communicate to their children from their parents, Mm -hmm. whether that's doing the complete opposite, doing the same, whatever. And often um, vulnerability may not be a part of that in the way that they communicate. And that would be the other thing is the communication within the family or within the couple or for the individual, right? It doesn't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily matter, but often it's communication. And so looking at that that's often what people get into the get into the room for is i try to tell them to clean up their room and they Mm -hmm. just yell at me right right well let's talk about what's going on there just like you were saying with your client what's a different way of communicating that um so often it's that vulnerability the communication um you know i i think and we'll probably get more into this is there's a really big uh like understanding gap between parents and children, especially in modern times. Um, So that's another huge thing that comes into the door. And also something I've seen is just within families, within couples, difficulty processing emotions in a healthy way. So I think those are probably some of the bigger things. And I know each of those could, you know, have roots and spread out. 
um, probably the bigger things if I had to think through it. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I think mm-hmm. let's break some of those down. So one of the ones you were just highlighting was I, I see a lot of times, especially and this is going to be for families with uh, kids, mm-hmm. you know, why do you think people have such a hard time getting on the same page with parenting? Right. So are you just talking about the couple or are you talking about the parents with parent friends? No, the couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, there are two people coming from two different systems. Yeah. And so that's what they have to remember is we're coming into this system, right? Going back to that idea of gifts. I, I got these gifts. He got these gifts and we're coming into our relationship with that. And I, I think, something that could, I don't want to say be done better because that feels shaming. Um, that could be done differently would be the way, um, really validating individuals that would want to look at like premarital counseling or couples counseling Mm. prior to marriage or having children, because I think it just really creates a safe space to have the conversations of this is how I was parented. This is how I was parented. Here's what we want to do. Um, because that's something else that I see is is couples, families get into having children before having those conversations. Um, so again, it just goes back to communication. Yeah. They learn on the, on the go, on the fly. Right. It's like, well, we we got married. We've been married a few years. We have this kid and now let's figure out how we're going to parent together while sleep deprived, having special needs, having conflict, having work switch. Right. And so then the individual goes back to their survival mechanisms Mm -hmm. that they were taught in their family of origin. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean many it's people, all circular. Yeah, absolutely. How many people have you heard, you know, I would, I'm never going to do this. Right. You know, I'll never be like my father. And then right. you hear coming out of your mouth, you know, something that sounds exactly like one of your parents. Right. And then it's all of a sudden I became like my dad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now so, there's shame and then, you know. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, a lot of it is all, I mean, I, I really do think a lot of it goes back to communication, you know, because I think another big thing with parenting is it like technology. Um, and I, I'll talk a little more about that probably, but, um, you know, it's okay. Well, dad lets them have the iPad for 20 minutes. Mom doesn't. Okay. That's not on the child. And unfortunately the child, there's a, a theory out there. It's called triangulation, mm-hmm. right? A good Bowen term. A good old Bowen term. <laughs> God, I love him. Um, but it's triangulation where there's anxiety between the parents. And unfortunately they bring in a third, right? Whether that's the child addiction, work, whatever it may be, in this case, the child, um, and the anxiety gets placed on the child. And so unfortunately, now that child thinks mom and dad are arguing because of me, when ultimately, it's because of this communication or lack thereof. Right. And then a parent doesn't know because they know nothing about any of this we're talking about. Right. And and they're just doing their normal conflict style. Mm-hmm. And their kid for years and years and years is feeling like their parents conflict is their fault. Right. And then the next thing you know, the child comes into our office, whether as a teenager or as an adult, and it's everything's my fault, what's wrong? Mm-hmm. Well, as a systems therapist, I'm able to look back and say, well, what'd the house look like? Right? right. And then go back to that route. And I think it's amazing because that has zero to do with the parent's intention. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely nothing on the parent, you know, not to shame them at all. Uh, it's just, it is what it is. And I think, but I think that's, what's hard for people is they go, man, my parents did the best they could. They were good people. Mm-hmm. They didn't mean to do that. So then therefore it's all my fault. And it's like, that's yes. part of the problem is like learning that two truths can happen at the same time. Right. One is your parents did do the best they could with what they knew and how they did it. Mm-hmm. They had no bad intentions, let's say, mm-hmm. and yet they severely screwed up mm-hmm. and dropped the ball and left you with some significant deficits. 
Right. And I, and I both think both are true. Exactly. As a as a MFT, I have the firm belief that parents do the best with what they know how and what they've been taught. Um, because otherwise I think the world would be way too jaded (laughs) if I did not have that belief. Um, and so I do believe that. And also it's worth saying they're humans and they aren't perfect. So your life hasn't been perfect and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it just creates a safe space for whoever's sitting on the couch, whoever's talking, wherever you are, just to create that safe space to talk about, um, your experience and, you know, what you've learned in life. Yeah, we haven't mentioned this as far as faith, but, you know, when we talk about root causes, I think that that falls down to, you know, we have the biblical teachings of mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And it right. talks about this teaching, you know, being, working together, having equality, uh, lifting each other up, being Christ in the church, serving each other, not departing, not disconnecting, like mm-hmm. not saying anything that's going to, you know, drive your kid to anger, you know, being gentle, being sensitive, uh, reading the word, staying connected. I mean, all these things are in the Bible. Right. And yet somehow I think even in me as a Christian parent, you know, when we go to church, we don't necessarily get a small group on how to do that. Right. You know, before count, you know, before becoming a, you know, you're a young adult, like, you know, like not being married. Mm -hmm. It's not like you get kind of equipped from the church on like, Hey, Mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. This is what this is going to look like. And here's what you do when it happens. And here's, here's who to come to. Mm hmm. There's just a general understanding that everybody, like everybody kind of treats it as if everybody knows what they're doing. Right. Right. And a lot of that, I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, unfortunately, social media, you're, you're allowed to portray whatever you want people to see on that. Mm -hmm. And if you aren't close with other people, again, this so goes to the system. If you aren't close with other people, then they miss out on what you're really going through. And for the individual for me, I feel so sad about that because it really misses the individual would really miss out on places that they could heal that they've probably really been hurting. Um, because you know, I I think, I think we learn a lot about ourselves in relationships. And whenever I say relationships, I mean, friendships, romantic, therapeutic relationship, relationship with your boss. I mean, all over. Um, if there's two people in a room, there's a relationship that's formed. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know. I just, I feel sad whenever, you know, a person walks into a room and they feel so alone because there's such a missed opportunity there. Yeah. And the problem is the problem, right? Is that we've been yeah. hurt, been hurt by people. So mm-hmm. people and people are the thing we need to heal our people. And yet we're scared of that. We're scared mm-hmm. to be vulnerable we, or we've been taught that we can't, or we've tried and we've gotten, you know, right. Smacked down. And so that doesn't work anymore. Right. Or I just put on a smile and you know, people think I'm fine and that will draw people in close but the sad part is that that still keeps people at arm's length. So mm-hmm. everyone has their own coping mechanisms and their survival mechanisms that they learn in their family of origin. Yeah. I love to talk about, uh, Terry Hargrove talks about, uh, in restoration therapy, the idea of reparenting yourself. Yes. And so as an adult, you know, being able to go, okay, how do I fix this? Like, you know, let's say you and your husband or your wife are, are not parenting on the same page. I mean, I get mm-hmm. that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the way you do that is you stop and say, well, why do I parent the way that I do? Mm-hmm. Why do I think that my way of parenting is 100% right? Right. Have I learned, you know, it's funny when people come in, they're like, well, this is my experience. So therefore it's right. It's like, so that's your sample size. Like is your family of origin. Right. Like that's all you have is just this one research paper on your family. And that somehow gives evidence to this all being the way to do it. 
Yeah, it's like, take a look at all my books on parenting. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a lot more there. (laughs) Yeah, and people used to say that. I remember my parents saying that early on. Well, you know, well, we didn't have books on this stuff. And I'm like, well, we do now. We we do now. (laughs) And there's a lot of people talking about it. So let's talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, and so, you know, people have to stop and get into counseling and go, okay, Mm -hmm. why don't I want to give on this issue? What's that remind me of? Um, This Mm -hmm. happened the other day. My... uh, I have a six-year-old, my oldest, Grady, and he uh, he was mad about, oh, he's trying to put this Lego thing together that he got for Christmas. And it's a little, it's not really Legos, but it's a little older than what he really can do right. know, with his fine motor skills. And so he kept trying to put these pieces together and they were popping off and he got really mad and threw it across the living room and then starts barging to his room. I'm mm-hmm. trying to de-escalate him. I hear him slam the door. And I take a deep breath and my wife's like, I'm going in there, you know, my wife's like, Hey babe, you know, I know that's a trigger for you. Like slamming doors, Uh take a deep breath. And I was really okay. Right. But she was just reminding me through our relationship that like that can really trigger me that Mm -hmm. severe defiance, the loud noise from my own PTSD that has nothing to do with Grady or even really much my childhood, Mm -hmm. but other things with loud noises. And so, but having that understanding of each other, having that vulnerability with each other, knowing our triggers helps us to parent because then we can call it to attention. Right. But when neither person knows anything about why it is that you do what you do, mm-hmm. then you have no communal support. And that helps so much keep that trauma that you've experienced off of Grady. Absolutely. Right. Because otherwise that may be something that would be, you know, of course what's coming to my mind is the trauma egg, Yeah, yeah <laughs> but, but that may be something that say Grady would take into therapy later. I don't know why this event that happened when I was six around Legos is standing out because there's no, there's nothing I would call traumatic in there. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the message that he would receive had you and your wife not known each other's triggers and not been able to communicate well enough to say, okay, let's take a minute before we go in there. Absolutely. And you know, the reason we got to that is by me failing. So, right. you know, we, and that's okay. This happened like months ago. Um, he, the first couple of times he slammed the door, you know, I went in right behind him, opened the door. He was—he always goes and gets in his bed and mm-hmm. you know, cries or sits there. And so I went and I grabbed him. I pulled him out of his bed and I put him in timeout and talked to him. Um, and, well, I didn't talk to him at that point. And, you know, as I did it, you know, I didn't spank him. I didn't yell at him. We don't, I don't spank anyway. But the reality is, is like, I still, I don't usually put my hands on him ever. Right. And so that whole week we've been reading this book called God made all of me. And it talks about Mm -hmm. how your body's your own and no one else can touch you. And Mm -hmm. you know, you have the only thing as a child you have a right to is your body. And so you can tell people no. And if somebody's touching you and hugging you, even in a good way, you can say no. Mm -hmm. And this is all just playing through my head. And I, you know, I went to him immediately afterwards and I said, Hey, I was frustrated. I'm really sorry that I put my hands on you. I should not touch you. If you don't want to be touched, I shouldn't, I should ask you to get out of the bed like, and give you mm-hmm. the option first. And so we had this conversation, you know, at the time he's like five and a half. And, um, but I said, I won't do that again. Mm-hmm. And so in my head, it was a marker of, you know, I'm going to have to figure out how to not be triggered by door slamming. Cause he's a little kid and he's going to do it. Right. I'm not going to read it as super defined and feel all disrespected because that's mm-hmm. just going to make me act like a crazy person. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to adapt to that. My point is, is I think where people get mixed up is they think they have to be perfect. Yeah. Like as therapists, we start laying all this stuff out and people are like, there's no way I can do that. Right. It feels very overwhelming. Yeah. And it's, you don't have to be perfect, Yeah, but you have to repair. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's different, hopefully for us as parents is it's not that you can't screw up. It's not that your family system can't come into the room and have a say. It's that what you do differently is you take the time to repair. Right. And that's an, a big part of just within couples as well. Not oh, even absolutely. just family. Any is, system, right? Yeah. Any system. Yeah. Is... 
the research shows with couples is it's not fighting that leads to divorce or separation. It's not having repair, Mm -hmm. not having resolve that leads to divorce. So really for children to see parents argue, bicker, you know, of course, in a healthy way, nothing that gets unhealthy. And then also to see them be able to repair and resolve. I mean, that's a much better indicator of their relationships and also that couple's relationship is to be able to go back and resolve and repair as opposed to, you know, Gottman, who's huge in the couple's therapy world, has his four horsemen of the apocalypse is what he calls it. Mm -hmm. So you have contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Mm -hmm. And those are the biggest indicators of divorce, whereas repair and resolve is the biggest indicator of staying together. So it's huge for both the couple and for the family. Can you break down those four horsemen? Yeah. So with them, I love them because once you, you know, once you know what they are, you see them everywhere. And again, it doesn't just happen within, you know, a familial relationship. So with criticism, that's going to be, um, you can't, you can't teach them how to do math. You, um, you know, don't wash the, the dishes, right. You don't fill this dishwasher, right. Right. It's just very critiquing. That one's really common in women. Um, you know, it's that stereotypical nagging, mm-hmm. quote unquote. And, um, you know, I did a big old eye roll <laughs> there <laughs> because it's that stereotypical nagging that people think of, but it's really criticism. And again, that's a defense mechanism that comes up. So, um, you know, Hey, Hey babe, can you get supper started? I'm getting, you need to get supper started. Yeah, I've done right? all Why aren't this you stuff, doing yeah. that? Yeah, I've done all this all day. So it's just this criticism that happenings. So then the contempt is really starting to, and this is probably the biggest indicator of divorce is contempt. And that's really starting to get the person's characteristics mm-hmm. and their character um, and who they are as an individual. So um, you always stay out late. You never tell me what's going on. Uh, you never listen to me, right? Um, really using shaming. You're an idiot. You are stupid. So really getting at their character yep. and You're who selfish. they are. You're selfish. You don't care. Yep. Um, yeah, because it's, you know. You're contempt- a terrible father, right? Yeah, contempt is vicious because it's it's saying, I don't trust you at all. And mm-hmm. who you are to me is somebody who's bad. Right, exactly. And then the defensiveness is exactly what you think of with that is this defensiveness. Well, so that can look a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different defense mechanisms. That could probably be a whole podcast on itself. So, I mean, the defense mechanisms can be humor or it can be, um, you know, stonewalling would be one of them. But it could be, you know, using humor or... Unfortunately, it could lead to hitting or yelling or um, just completely, completely cutting them off. Yep. And that's both a male and a female thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, then, lo- I love the idea of you defend, like you withdraw, right? Which is the defense, mm-hmm. you know, to punish or right. to protect. Right. You know, so I can't take this anymore, so I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not going to talk to you for the next 30 minutes because I know you're going to hurt too. Right. And with defensiveness, that can also be... I think maybe you and Whitney talked about it last week is like the crazy making or the oh, gaslighting. Yeah, gaslighting yeah. Um, and so it can also lead to like smoke screening. Those sorts of things can be defensiveness as well. Um, and then with stonewalling, that's more common in men to do. I have seen it in women to do as well, uh, but more commonly men and stonewalling is just stopping talking, yeah. literally leaving the place that you're in. Um, I've seen, I, I was watching a session um actually and saw the wife stand up and literally turn her her back she was she was holding the baby and completely turned her back to the husband and still kept talking 
We're like, God, that's such a picture of stonewalling. Mm, I'm um, a big stonewaller. I'm sorry, honey. <laughs> you know, like when we get, I get really frustrated or really overwhelmed. You know, I, I would I'm do it. Done yep. talking. Mm-hmm. Like, Same. I, I won't look at her. She, she always mm-hmm. knows when I'm mad. Cause like, I won't make any eye contact. I'll just walk through the kitchen. I'll yep. go, I won't be doing anything loud. I'll just, but I will not be engaging my body towards yep. her in any way. I like to think that you can't read me, but <laughs> right. really you can read me. Cause absolutely. Obviously I talk a lot and then all of a sudden I'm not. So <laughs> me too. But those would be the four horsemen, and those are really um, can be really problematic to a relationship and really unhealthy. So I would say if you're experiencing any of those, then reach out for some help. Absolutely, and, mm-hmm. and just it's normal, right? You know, I said that about myself to, to say like even as therapists, like we have these mm-hmm. same coping skills. It's when they become consistent. It's when they become constant. It's when they you know especially all four of them are at play, right? When things you know are past the point of no return. So I think you know for all couples and families like a little bit of therapy every once in a while to check in, you know, my wife and I go every week. So, you know, it, it's a tune up, it's a check in. It's a, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's not going to keep you from having conflict. Like you said, I mean, conflict's healthy and you know, we see couples and we'll get into roles and stuff like that, but you know, you see kind of the pursuer withdrawal kind of family system. Mm -hmm. And you see that a lot in marriage. Some one person is the one there's conflict and then that person's going to follow them to the bedroom and pursuing and right. talking and won't let it go. And I want to fix this right now. And the withdrawers like more and more overwhelmed and more mm-hmm. and more getting out of there. And they're like, I'm not going to deal with this. Right. And that goes into, and I think we'll talk some about this later into, you know, the individual's attachment style as yeah. well. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And in some couples are both withdrawers. Right. You know, so they both just get silent. Mm-hmm. And they and it builds and builds. And that's really the most dangerous, in my opinion, what I've right. seen. The big part, too, is paying attention to the motivation of why you do those things, right? Because it could be because you feel anxious that the mm-hmm. other person, which this goes into some attachment stuff, but feel anxious that the other person may be leaving. So then you choose just to, okay, well, I've been overbearing, so I'm just going to step back. And that's not healing either to mm-hmm. do that. No, not at all. No. Yeah. I mean, nothing's getting accomplished. Yeah. Um, and neither but, is just yelling at each other, so... Right, yeah. right. Nothing gets accomplished. And so it's a big part of whether that's a therapy room or a space in the house is finding that safe space to have that resolve. So what are some markers um, like that you've had family system trauma, right? If you're sitting out there and people are listening, they're like, well, I'm not, you know, this all sounds good. We're right. having some of these problems. I thought that was just us. Right. You know, what are the indicators that that comes from probably some family systems trauma that needs to get? I think for the individual that may be thinking that it would be worth paying attention to your relationships outside of your primary relationship. So whenever I say primary relationship, that could be your partner. That could be, um, your parent that could be your best friend, right? It's that, it's that primary person in in your life. And so I would really encourage that individual to look outside of there. And if there's any indication of similar patterns, in other relationships, there may be more family systems trauma going on that you, you may not know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, it's not necessarily the event, it's the negative messages or you know what we would call in the therapy world, the core beliefs of that individual. Um, so that would be a big indicator. I also think a big part would be paying attention to how, um, really how you're reacting to your environment around you. And so, again, that may not be in relationship with people that may just be at your desk at work. So all of a sudden your boss has asked you to do five new tasks and you're wanting to withdraw, Mm -hmm. right? That's probably a bigger indicator than just I'm stressed right now. 
that's your coping mechanism coming out to play. That's your survival stance. That that's, um, you know, that's something bigger than just I'm tired and I don't want to do these things right now. Right. Um, so really pay attention if that's a pattern in your life, uh, because there's probably something more going on than just I don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. I, that's just an example because no, it may be the pursuer too. Yeah, it's good. It, what people need to look at is their level of dysfunction. Right. I right. Mean, is it make are you functioning well or is mm-hmm. this thing always coming up and causing conflict in right. your work at home is this something that other people are calling out in you right and i i think with the functioning piece as well is another question to ask is oh you're functioning well right because going back to that community and conversation piece we just had it, it's also worth thinking what secrets am i keeping right because if, if for some reason you have secrets or you're keeping things to yourself that you could be sharing with that primary relationship, there may be something bigger going on there that maybe that individual's feeling shame about or feels embarrassed or pain and just isn't sure how to process it. So some of it is subjective just to um, ask yourself some really <laughs> reflective questions and also some of it's objective to pay attention and get feedback from the people around you. Yeah. But it's so easy to blame everybody else for our problems. And if you're doing that, you may want to check on it too That's right. <laughs> because there may be something else going on. Um, but it is just so much easier to blame other people and keep going. And also that's exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting. Um, okay. So what are some ways to stop those things? Like what are, if you, if you look at it and you go, okay, I have this stuff going on. You know, obviously going to therapy. I'll shamelessly plug therapy yeah, all day long. Absolutely. Um, but what are some things kind of in their own life that they can look at and, and right. do differently to not continue that cycle with their kids, with their husband, with their wife? Well, I think if a person is already asking that question, they're doing something right. So, I mean, I would really validate the person that may be listening to this and thinking, oh, I may need to do some things different. You're recognizing something is off or you are wanting to choose not to do something. So I would just validate that that's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, therapy is a huge part of that and being able to see that. The other big piece in that is going to be boundaries. Um, and I think often for people, I'll say that word to a client and it's what in the world are you talking about? Yeah, we had a, we did this talk uh, at a church a couple of times. I can't remember. I won't say whoever it was, but we were talking about uh, doing a, it was men and women. And so she had done this presentation and afterwards they were like, wow, it was really good, but it was way over our heads. Right. And I was discussing and I said, well, you know, you really could do an hour on boundaries with almost anybody and they wouldn't know what that is. Right. But as clinicians, I think we sometimes forget because that's such a, that's the first step into relationship building is like healthy boundaries. But Mm -hmm. if you ask the average person, what are the three types of boundaries? They wouldn't know what's going on. No, no. So let's talk about that. Right. What are boundaries and The way that I like to describe boundaries just to the person that I'm talking to that's not a therapist is a boundary is where you end and another begins. Yep. And so with that, that's really difficult and really hard for people to see. And I'd probably say that's another indicator of family systems trauma is if you don't know what a boundary is or you find yourself feeling walled off, that's probably a good indicator as well. And so with a boundary being where you end and another begins, it's also figuring out how to communicate that. Mm -hmm. I think a big part of boundaries is there's internal boundaries and there's external boundaries. 
Um, often within a family system, if there is someone to set those boundaries with, a lot of that's going to be internally done because you can't control if the other person respects what you're setting or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of work there. I talk about it and it sounds so easy and like that could be done like in one session with a therapist right. or the next when you go home on Thanksgiving <laughs> for a couple Oof. of weeks. Um, you know, so it sounds like that could be done really easily and it's actually really not. It's it's a really difficult concept. It's a really difficult thing for people to do. I understand. I mean, I'm a human and have to set boundaries as well. And it's acknowledging the discomfort. It's acknowledging maybe the pain that may come up for you or others. And also it's remembering, I can't take your pain and you can't take mine. Mm-hmm. This is where I end and you begin. Or I won't take your pain is probably the better way of putting that. Um, and, and you begin. Yeah, I think especially in the Christian world, we have a hard time with boundaries because yeah. we kind of misunderstand Christ and how he set boundaries. Right. We tend to think that, you know, we say things like carry your cross and die to yourself and wash mm-hmm. the disciples feet. And, you know, just in my own work in therapy, I realized like, well, that he didn't do that every time. Right. What I, what I mean is, is like when you're, when Christ had boundaries, like in Capernaum, like they, they were there, there was all these people following him. You know, they had this kind of buildup of people. The disciples were super excited about it. And, and Jesus woke up the, that day and was like, hey, we're leaving. Mm-hmm. And they were like, what? And he's like, no, we're out. Like, we're going to go to another town. Mm-hmm. And they're like, why? And they got really upset. And he said, because if we stay here, they're going to be dependent on me. It won't right. be their story. And to me, it was like, that was a healthy boundary. Right. There were other times where he got in the boat, went out in the water and prayed by himself. And mm-hmm. the, the disciples were like, where are you going? We have stuff to do. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I need a day to be right. with the father. Right. And it's being able to, a lot of that comes with self-awareness and it comes with taking the time to yourself to figure out what you do need and what you do need to set as a boundary. Um, I think people get confused with that sometimes as well of I'm setting a boundary and this is how it is. Well, that could become more aggressive and less assertive. Right. And so you're right. So that, that's understanding the three types. So just so people are listening. So there's diffuse boundaries, which are like open-ended. Mm-hmm. Anybody can do whatever they want to. They walk all over you. And we can kind of add attachment in here when we talk about right. it. Right. But, you know, that's a, you know, you, you don't, it's very emotional. It's about your feelings. I don't want to let, mm-hmm. I don't want to tell nobody no, because it's going to hurt their feelings. It's going to make them feel bad that mm-hmm. I'm going to feel bad. They're not going to love me. People know everything about me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or there's rigid which right. is what you were describing, which mm-hmm. is here's my boundary. It's not moving. Yep. It's not, there's no emotions. I don't care your intentions, my intentions, right? Mm-hmm. What happens? I'm not changing. No this one's thing. coming in. Yes. Mm-hmm. And or out like there's right. no shift. And then there's healthy boundary, which is a little bit of both. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So Pia Melody has a great book facing codependence. And the, I think that's in like chapter one or two. It may even be in the introduction, right. <laughs> but um, she does a great job describing the three of those boundaries uh, and, and so it looks at just a little tiny stick person and those diffuse boundaries, there's no circle. It may actually be like a, a square, a super, yeah. um, but there's, there's nothing around that individual. And then the rigid boundary, it's the little stick person and just solid lines completely around it. And then there's the, the individual that has a healthier set of boundaries and it's dotted lines, mm-hmm. right? So that people can go in and out. And also you still have some protection for yourself. And so again, it's just figuring out what is that individuals that I work with, with, with the really rigid boundaries, I just encourage them to build a door. I'm like, look, you can still have your wall for now. <laughs> right. I'm like, let's just build a door. And also it's looking at what's your wall built out of, right? Like what are the bricks made of? Mm-hmm. And then for the person without any boundaries, it's 
why, why do you not need have the have the feeling or the need to protect yourself yeah and so it's just talking through those things and then encouraging them okay let's let's build a little wall for yourself let's build a little boundary or fence and let's figure out what the building blocks of that are going to be is it going to be communication is it going to be um, spirituality right it's just figuring out what you want to build it with or what you want to take out that's so good. I mean, that plays into the big, as soon as you asked, I almost started laughing because I was just thinking about Trump and building the wall and all those things. Yeah. And it's like, but that, that is like a, a big issue because the, these big topics that we're trying to answer and deal mm-hmm. with, like, let's like just take immigration, for example, like that's literally a boundary. Right. Right. It's a hu- yeah. And we have one half of the country, not half of the country, but there is a fringe group saying, starting to say like boundaries are bad. Like having any open country, right. like. You should have open borders and let everybody in, and that's loving and that's gracious. Right. And then you have another side that's saying, no, we need a wall, and no one should get in unless it's you know very specific. Uh-huh. And, and that's literally what we're describing, right? Is right. Diffuse versus rigid boundaries. Well, and the the thing is, again, it's a system, mm-hmm. and I could go into that, but it's a system, and within a system, there's give and take, right? I heard one of my professors would say a marriage is getting, uh, I think 50% of what you want 50% of the time, right? (laughs) Like that's how he would talk about it. And so it is. And, and that's exactly what that is, is okay. We're saying yes, let everyone in or no, keep everyone out. That leaves no room for conversation. That leaves no room for compromise. Well, and that's all the time. Right. There's no change. So the, another way I like to describe a boundary is a rubber band, right? It's mm-hmm. it's got a solid shape that's consistent, but you can stretch it every once in a while to move it around if you need to, and it'll come back. But it'll come right. back to that consistent shape. Right. And so you want to try in your family with your kids, in your marriage, in your relationships at work, you want to be consistent. You mm-hmm. want to you know, you know not yell at your kids seven out of ten times, eight out of ten times, mm-hmm. so that when you screw up or you slip up or you need to tighten that boundary or loosen that boundary, it's it's it comes back together. Right. Right. But if you stretch the rubber band and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it every time, eventually it's going to pop right. or it's not going to go back to where it's supposed to originally go. Exactly. And so then it's looking at okay, okay, this rubber band has gotten tired and it's not working anymore. <laughs> So right. I may need to get a new one and learn something different. Absolutely. Right. Because the way that I was treating this is, isn't working. It's it's not doing what it needs to do. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have the function that it once had for me. Yeah. Because having the diffuse or having, uh, you know, those rigid boundaries served a function at some point, And now it's looking at it, it may not be serving that same function. Mm-hmm. That's good. So tell me how attachment plays into that. So attachment, I could talk about attachment all day. I love it. Um, So it's looking at, there's four different types of attachment and and that's secure, there's anxious attachment, there's avoidant attachment, and there's anxious avoidant attachment. So let's just break those four down. Yeah, so really quickly, secure is... You don't have to be um, quick, it's fine. (laughs) With secure... (laughs) I'm not going to get bored. (laughs) um, I know I love talking to other people that are trained in this, but with secure, it's looking at, I feel comfortable with my primary relationship leaving. I trust that they will come back. If they choose not to come back, that's not necessarily about me, right? So it's both secure in your relationships and also secure in yourself. With anxious attachment, it's going to be, you know, I used this example earlier of um, when my relationship leaves or withdraws or whatever it may be, 
I'm feeling very concerned. I'm having a really difficult time self-soothing. Um, you know, John Bowlby did all of this mm -hmm. research on it. Um, I'm having a really difficult time self-soothing. And even whenever that primary relationship comes back, I still am having a difficult time self-soothing because I'm anxious they may leave again. Mm -hmm. With the avoidant yeah, attachment. Yeah, that was so painful that now I'm going to cling. Right. Because I can't lose it. Right. And that, that clinging or that, you know, really sticking to them can look a lot of different ways. Uh, it's, I said this earlier, it's looking at the motivation behind the action that you're doing with avoidant attachment. That's going to be, um, you know, the individual leaves fine. Sure. Go ahead and go. Don't, you know, care. don't, don't care. A lot of people with that think there there's a scale and it's the experiences in close relationship scale. Um, I think you're probably familiar with it with mm. some of the CSAT stuff. Uh, but I'll, I would have a number of individuals identify as secure and after getting to know them, I'd say, okay, I'm going to call you on that because that's wrong, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, and, and I, they would get frustrated. And after talking to them, they would say, oh, I, I see why you're saying that. Um, so being able to talk them through that. Can you give a little more specific example of that? With the avoidant? Yeah. Or well, thinking why, that they're secure? Yeah. Thinking they're secure. Yeah. So a lot of them will, sometimes there may be personality characteristics playing into it. Um, but often it's this, uh, I would call it pseudo confidence that comes out with a person that may be experiencing avoidant attachment because it is the, well, they leave. That's not about me. That's on them. Mm -hmm. I don't care if they come or go. Right. Or in an argument with a spouse and okay, they're still talking. I'm done. Like, I don't need this anymore. Right. Right. So that individual, it, it's really a, a false sense of empowerment and a false sense of security. And it's also extremely isolating and very lonely in right. that bubble. Because what you've done is you've numbed out. Yep. Right. It's, it's not that you're secure. It's that you don't care. Mm -hmm. You've and, distanced yourself. Yeah. And that's, you know, what we're trying to get people to do is be authentic about their feelings. Mm -hmm. So not blast somebody, not withdraw, but just say, hey, I feel this way. That doesn't have anything to do with you, but I'm going to be vulnerable and express that and allow right. you to meet my needs. Right. And I think something I would add is, you know, a lot of people may think that they're avoidant because it's like, I'm conflict avoidant. I don't want to be a part of that. That could be, this is an example of the motivation that could be anxiety or that anxious attachment driving that avoidance. So just cause you avoid things doesn't necessarily mean that you have an avoidant attachment. Right. Um, it's a bit, it, that one starts to get a little complex. Mm -hmm. Then anxious avoidant um, attachment, these individuals tend to have highly conflictual relationships. It's a very push-pull relationship. So um, it's, you know, in the therapy world, there's the, I hate you, don't leave me, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's very much, I love you, but I don't want you to know everything. I want you close, and I'm afraid of what will happen if you get close. So for people in their relationships, that's why it's pretty co conflictual, because they don't really know what they want, mm -hmm. right? It gets, it gets really confusing. So, um, anyway, that would be the anxious avoidant is it's a mix of both. So how does that happen? The anxious avoidant? Just attachment in general. Like how, how does attachment get broken? Yeah. So some people out there will say that the attachment style that you learn in childhood, because it's learned in childhood is what you have for the rest of your life. I do agree with that to some extent. And whenever you find a healthy relationship, I think it can shift a little more to secure. However, for the individual, it's going to be paying attention to when stress gets put on the relationship, uh, whatever that relationship is, 
more than likely you'll return back to that attachment style because that's what you learned in childhood. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's formed is in that family of origin or not, depending on who your primary caregivers were as a kid. Um, that's where a lot of that is formed. There's a really great book, um, and it's on adoption and families that have adopted children. It's called Primal Wound, and yes, it talks. So good. Yeah, it talks a lot about um, how even attachment begins whenever the child's still in the mother's in womb. The womb yeah. um, of course, it goes more into adoption, but I think that's a really great fact of okay, this is happening before the child is even technically in the world. It, you know what's beautiful about that when it comes to uh, about adoption is from a Christian perspective, like we're all adopted. Right. And so it's cool to think of like, okay, we're not in Genesis chapter one and two. So there's sin, there's brokenness. Mm -hmm. And we, no matter how perfect we try to be as parents and how perfect our parents try to be, they're not God. Right. There's never going to be a perfectly, you know, secure attachment. Right. Because God is perfect and been consistent and been loving. And yet we still doubt him. We still avoid him. We still right. like run from him and don't trust him. Because unfortunately, a lot of the time we view God as what we've learned as our yep. earthly parents right? and those parental figures. And so it's that same idea of, you know, the attachment that I'm creating with my husband or my wife is very simple. We couple for a reason yep. is similar to that of the parents and often we place a lot on that partner that we learned from childhood. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is the same with our, our faith and with our relationship with God is often we place on him what's not meant to be placed on him. He'll accept it and he'll take it and he'll work on healing that with you. If obviously if you're open to that and aware of that and willing to do that. And also as stress comes into your life, that same attachment's going to come back. Yeah, we talked about reparenting, and that uh -huh. a lot of that is your relationship with God. Like, mm -hmm. who is He as your father and mother? What's He say about you that's true, that's valuable? What, you know, these two kind of core love and trust. Am I am I valued and am I safe? And when we grow up in homes where our attachment is broken, when our boundaries right. are violated, or there's not any. Right. Then it changes. People don't realize that it forms our opinions about us. Right. Early on, our mm -hmm. opinions about if we're loved and if we're safe and if we're secure are already formed at a very young age. Right. And, you know, going back to the example of your son slamming the door, mm -hmm. right, that could have been a really big time of that attachment forming based on how you as a parent responded to that. And and so, I mean, that is a huge piece of it. So I think it's extremely important to know about yourself. It's something that as a therapist that I pay attention to, um, especially if I have a couple in the room, I was taught to shoot for the middle of the couch, not the opposite ends. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is paying attention to attachment style and, you know, being aware of that. And I think the other piece with that, you know, jumping back to the, the spiritual piece of it is within the step community. That's a huge part. It did start out specifically with God, right? And now it's become the God of your own understanding. And, Unfortunately, I think for some individuals suffering with addiction, the God of their own understanding, I've heard a number of them say, well, he's a fire and brimstone God. He is a punishing one. He's a judgmental one, right? And if I sit there with them and talk about it, I'm like, okay, well, who else does that remind you of? It's like, well, my dad was like that and mm -hmm. my grandfather was like that or whoever, right? Yeah. And so again, it, it brings it back into perspective to be able to say, 
well, let's let's look at some other pieces, right? Let's expand that because your relationship with your higher power, right? It's the, the step term with your higher power is mimicking your relationship with your dad. And we can separate those, yes, right? Which is a sure. great thing. We can separate those. Yeah, and people have never gotten the opportunity to say, well, is that God or is that your parent? Right. You know, well, they're one and the same. Right. Because you never experienced, you know, I think kids need affection, attention, and affirmation, especially little boys, but I think all of them need it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you get attention, you get focus, you get time, you get eye contact, you get this, you know, this time together, building, doing mm -hmm. whatever, playing, you get affection, you get, I love you, I care about you, you know, I get, I give you a hug, I give you a kiss. Right. You know, my son the other day is like, Dad, you know, you've kissed me four times already. You know, you're about to go to work. And, you know, because I'm just always yeah. trying to show him affection. And then attention, affection, and then, what did I say? Uh, attachment. Like, you know, time together, quality time together. Um, and so a lot of kids don't get any of that. Right. You know, they, they say they had a great childhood. But, again, they're measuring it against really bad childhoods. Right. You know, like severe trauma, abuse, neglect, right. sexual abuse you know, not having a parent. Mm -hmm. And what I always want people to think of is like, let's measure it against what God intended you to receive. Right. If, if your parents were God, mm -hmm. who they're supposed to be modeling Christ in the church, they got their affection, their attention and their attachment, you know, um, from God, mm -hmm. then they can give that to you. But, you know, you put it on a scale and it's like, well, if I didn't ever receive attention and affection, I don't know how to give it. Mm -hmm. I give the things that I can. I do the best that I can. But now... Now I have a deficit that I can't give and my kid's not getting that and on and on the cycle goes. Right. So, go ahead. Well, and I was just thinking, you know, some of that I mentioned earlier, a lot of the healing happens in the relationship with the attachment piece. And if that's an individual, so say you aren't in a primary relationship or you aren't in a romantic relationship, a lot of that healing can happen in your relationship with Christ. Yes. And being able, it, it, it's really difficult for a lot of people because it's not tangible and it's mm -hmm. not right there. Um, and often people are very cognitive thinkers and not so abstract, right? And also there's a lot of tangible information in the Bible that tells us, okay, he is here. We do have that. We can rely on that. We can trust in that. Um, and that, that also goes into a big part of community and being able to have exactly what you're saying, those image bearers doing exactly that, bearing the image and reworking that relationship and, and ultimately reparenting yourself and reconnecting with something higher than yourself. Yeah. And I don't think either one's better. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think being married or being single is better. I think right. they both have different opportunities to glorify God. I mean, Paul's very clear, mm -hmm. you know, to stay single if you can. Right. And the way he says it, it's some stuff that's weird, but you know, the <laughs> reality is, is that, um, there's pros and cons of both. Absolutely. Yeah. Challenges. You're not going to be able to have mm -hmm. sex with I me. Mean, I guess you can have sex with your friends, right. but the reality is, is like, but you can find intimacy and connection. And I think that's yes. a big piece to addiction, right? Mm -hmm. And to systemic problems right. is there's no intimacy. There's no vulnerability, but intimacy only means sex. I th because I think people have confused intimacy with just the physical. Right. Right. And whether single or in a relationship, there has to be the emotional intimacy that goes, I mean, emotional intimacy includes the mental, the spiritual, the emotional, obviously it's emotional intimacy, yeah. you know, and so the communication, For so sure. there's a lot of pieces there, um, that can be done outside of a romantic relationship. Yeah. So if you're wondering why you don't have good relationships with your friends or you're alone, mm -hmm. right. That's not because you're a terrible person and maybe that you don't have the skills to do it. Right. You know, so right. you might have to go to therapy or counseling and learn how to interact with the therapist. I mean, that happens to me all the time. It's right. like, we're their first person. We're, I call this like a surrogate. It's like, you know, they, you don't have any community. 
you don't realize why nobody likes you. You right. go to crowds or go to groups. You never really connect with anybody. And mm-hmm. it may be that you have no clue how to because your parents never showed you because they didn't know how to. Mm-hmm. And so you come to counseling and you act weird and we don't judge you. Right. And we laugh at, you know, the fact that you do whatever you do. And then we get to know you. And as you feel safe and as you practice the, the relationship piece, right. you start to be confident. And then you take that out to a group or a situation. And then you bring it back in and say, this went well or this didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And so that attachment is formed here becomes safer yes Mm -hmm. and then we try to transition you out into the world and say we don't want to be your attachment figure right but we'll at least be a surrogate for a while Mm -hmm. until you find somebody out there who will we can help model that yes for you unfortunately and in 2020 there's some wild statistics about this but unfortunately a lot of individuals have gone to the internet to get that connection and that I used this earlier, but it's a very much a pseudo connection that's happening between you and a screen. Are you talking about social media or telehealth? Uh, I would say more like social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think so much telehealth. I think therapists are doing the best they can yeah. <laughs> with that. Uh, but I do think like Hell, social we won't media. We get into debate about that right now. <laughs> right. Um, but I do think social media. If you look at the, the statistics on pornography, in one day one pornography website got more hits than Amazon, Instagram, and Facebook combined. Mm-hmm. And, one, and that's just one website. And so that's looking at what I see in that and what I hear in that is that people are craving connection. Mm-hmm. People are craving intimacy. They've just got confused on what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And that didn't start, that's what I want people to understand. And it didn't start with them. Right. Like people aren't 33 and they had great attachment great boundaries, great childhood, and then they just go cheat on their spouse. No. Right, that's just not how a much longer story than that. Right, but Mm -hmm. I feel like, number one, we think it because we don't know. And number two, as a culture, because we don't know, we treat people that way. Right. So we look at someone's behavior and we go, I would never do that, or how could they do that? Or, you know, they're so selfish, or they're so terrible, or, you know, this is some whatever. And the reality is, is that it's a very nuanced, long-term thing Mm -hmm. that that probably didn't start with them. Right. I said it at the beginning. It's hard to hate people from up close. Mm -hmm. Right. And so more than likely, if I I think often people kind of back away from from those situations, maybe not so much therapist and also maybe therapist will sometimes (laughs) back away from that because that starts to get a little too close to home. Oh, yeah. Especially if they don't understand systems. Right. And so it, it, it is. It's just understanding the system that you came from, the system that they came from and being able to to identify how you attach to people and how that's going to play out in that relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so crazy, you know, that Christ in the, in scripture, I mean, it talks about all of this, like it gives us a great blueprint for healthy relationships, healthy systems. Mm -hmm. I had a friend I was talking to the other week and we were talking about, he's a pastor and we're talking about like systems in church and how, you know, all these things are falling on the plates of lead pastors, especially during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we start talking through it and it's like, Oh, well there's, there's not a system in place. So of course everything's coming to you and -hmm. it's not that anybody, you know, wants that to happen, but if you don't put the system in place, then there's no responsibility for other people. There's no boundary for other people. There's no end to you and beginning of them. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of times it's not because people are trying to cross your boundaries. It's they don't know they're there. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't know where they end and, and, people children crave structure mm-hmm. as a as employees like you guys want to know what i want and what i don't mm-hmm. and, communication all right i'll be super vulnerable for a second but one of the to explain kind of this in personal like 
uh, as a two three wing right if a, if i'm a christian i can i don't know if i can say that anymore now apparently the enneagram's like satanic and uh eight wings seven yeah, i'll own it too <laughs> so um so i'm sorry for those listening that don't think the enneagram is can be christian um but the reality is is that like i like to help people and that comes from my childhood of being the oldest my parents divorced I had to try to figure out how to make mm-hmm. them happy, protect my sister. Mm-hmm. So I started playing basketball and performing and doing really well in school and trying to yep. do, you know, do all these things. And that led me to getting validation. It mm-hmm. made me feel safe. It made me feel secure. The problem is, is that that isn't what's supposed to give me validation. So right. that fails at some point. So now as a leader, I can tend to say, hey, listen, guys, I really want this done. Mm-hmm. But if it makes you anxious, don't worry about it. No big deal. Right. And that that communicates two things. It doesn't communicate what I want, and it leaves you going, well, I'm not really sure what he wants. It's a double bind. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, well, and then nobody does it. Right. Right. And so I have to have learned as a leader to get comfortable with saying, hey, I'd like this done and let it be done by next Friday. Mm-hmm. And then that's my boundary ends. Now your boundary starts, and you can say, right. hey, can I meet with you? I'm yeah. not going to be able to get that done by Friday. I don't feel comfortable doing that. What do you think I would do it this way? And then the boundary starts with me again. Right. And we get to respectfully go back and forth with our boundaries. Exactly. But what happens is, right, we have anxious attachment or we have attachment issues. Then we start crossing those boundaries mm-hmm. by me trying to take care of you or you trying to take care of me. And in my own therapy, I've realized, like, you know, there's three modes. There's, um, you know, being passive aggressive, being aggressive, or being congruent in your mm-hmm. communication. And a lot of times out of being nice we're passive aggressive, but it's really so we can just get out of it. Right. I can say, oh, I really want this. I really need this, but not that big of a deal. Then when you don't do it, I'm not that disappointed. Right. But the reality is I am disappointed. And now I'm frustrated because you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Even though I just told you I didn't really care. And within that, there's a whole mix of messages. Right. Right. Going between, again, you put two people in a room and there's a relationship. Right. So the message that you learn or what I'm hearing in it is that being validated equals being loved. Right. Right. And so that starts to play out. And that's why I think I even said this at the beginning is this isn't just for the family, Mm -hmm. right? Looking at the system isn't just to look at the family because you just talked about the workplace, right? right? It's to look at the world around you. And I think that's why part of the reason I, I did gravitate so much towards marriage and family and really have clung on to it and, I'm like a kid in a candy shop whenever I am talking about these things and, and reading about it because I think it does line up so much with my belief system. And I mean, Christ lived in community and that's what systems work is doing is really encouraging community and doing that in a healthy way. And it, that's with your family. That's with your workplace. That's with your neighbors. That's with your church, whoever you're surrounding yourself with, mm-hmm. that's with them. Yeah, and if you don't get congruent and heal from that early trauma, that early systemic attachment, those yep. boundary violations, then you're just playing it out in all the other systems in your life. Right. You don't get a new brain when you get older. No. <laughs> right. And I you know, I say with addiction, I'll say this is that the addict was born when the trauma happened, right? The addict began growing up whenever the child stopped. And so I think that happens just in the relationships as well, is okay there's often this one spot whenever people start realizing this is how I make it through, right? I get validation. This is how I make it through. So then that starts growing up and the other mechanisms stop. Yeah. And the healthier, maybe healthier ways, validation's fine, you know, but other healthier ways that you could look at any individual stops because that's what you learned worked. Yeah. 
That's good. Yeah. Yeah. So two things real quick, because we got a few more minutes. I think we got ten or fifteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about birth order, and then let's just kind of go through the trauma egg and that, and we can kind of wrap up yeah. from there. So tell us, tell me about birth order and how that plays out in the family. So I go back and forth on birth order. Yeah. So when you sent me this message, I was like, oh, this will be interesting, <laughs> because I, I. Yeah, I didn't give you my opinion. I do think it's. <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm an eight. I'm very opinionated. But I do think it's there. And also, I think it can be a cop-out sometimes, birth order. Yeah. So same thing with the Enneagram. Right. Right. We're, we're not sold on the fact that this defines you for the rest of your life. Yes. And that this was like always your destiny. Right. I do think there's some legitimacy to it in looking at, okay, the first child, you know, often the parent is maybe more overbearing or maybe feels more anxious or um, is going to be that laid back parent and does whatever, right? There are handbooks on these and also there aren't yeah, yeah, because for sure. there's not a handbook on Olivia Mason, child age two. Absolutely. You know, people are pretty unique. Right. And so I, I think with birth order, there is some legitimacy to that because the parents learn as they go and each child in that family ultimately isn't going to respond to parenting the same way that the other children do or have, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So for example, um, like I have an older brother, we have very different personalities. So my parents have have had to shift around whenever we were children, the way that they went at parenting because he responded to something different than I did. Mm -hmm. Right. He's more of an introvert. I doubt he listens to this, but if he does, you're an introvert, Brent, you know, <laughs> but like, he's more of an introvert and I'm more of an extrovert. Mm-hmm. So taking away things in his room were more of the consequence for him, whereas taking away time from other people was going to be the consequence for me. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm the, I'm the younger child. Yeah. And so I do think parenting the children has an impact. And it's like, you're saying, as the individual gets older, that doesn't necessarily have to define them. Yeah. Because I think often people will use that as, I mean, really become a victim to the birth order. Absolutely. And, and same thing with Enneagram, same thing with anything. Yeah. So really the the cover that I wanted was essentially that, that it is a thing that you should be aware of, right? Right. Some parents say all the time, like, uh, you know, we had two different kids and they just turned out so different and we parented them the exact same way. And I'm like, well, you do realize that didn't happen. Right. Like, there's no way that, mm-hmm. like, you parented your second child the same way you did your first right. child. Because you're totally different parents. Like, and, right. and speaking as a two-parent household, or two-kid household, like, we tried to. Like, but there's literally, you you only have, like, two people with the first one, and you just shower them with all the things, and mm-hmm. you're all on top of it. You have another kid, and you're like, oh, man, we got to split our time on this one. Like, I don't get to do all the things right. with him. So they're going to turn out different. The other thing, like with my, my youngest, sometimes I feel guilty for how little time he gets with just me and my wife. But then I had to add in, like, but he also gets love from a brother. Mm-hmm. So where Grady didn't have an older sibling loving him, doting on him, playing with him, Jude does. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to really quantify right. what's good and what's bad. It's just being aware that those things do make a difference. So the point of that for me is for people not to hold people accountable to their yeah. experience. And I do think, especially the older sibling, I've heard so many times, um, you know, my dad left my mom or my mom left my dad or 
one that I hear so often in the sex addiction world is my dad traveled a lot for work or wasn't there. And he would tell me before he left, you're the man of the house yeah, now. for sure. Well, now you're telling the six-year-old boy you're the man of the house and he's got a four and a three-year-old sibling and he's supposed to be equal to mom. Yep. Right. So that's where some of the, the birth order I do think comes into play is that often that older sibling may have different responsibilities than the middle child or the younger child. Right. And the younger child has different responsibilities than the older one. Mm -hmm. A lot of that looks like doing whatever they want to. Right. (laughs) Younger child. And so a lot of that goes into a theory that's called parentification Mm -hmm. and children taking on roles in the family that they aren't meant to take on. And what I do think is important about birth order is recognizing that within the system, there are subsystems. So there's the couple subsystem, there's the parent subsystem, and then there's the sibling subsystem. Mm -hmm. And so it's recognizing within that subsystem in your family, what role did you play? Yeah. I mean, I I spend so much time telling Grady he's not responsible for Jude. Yeah. And yet he still tries to like help him, you know, so there's all this stuff. But again, it's the communication that's important. Right. He's going to do things because he's a human. Right. And that can be a really fun role for him. Absolutely. And hey, man, I learned how to throw football today this way. I want to teach you. Mm -hmm. Right. That can be a really fun role for the older sibling or the younger sibling, you know, learning a new technology or a new something and being able to say, hey, hey, older sibling, here's something that I discovered today. I want to teach you about it. Mm -hmm. It can be really fun for the siblings. And also it can be really, um, a really big weight as well. Yeah. If, it's super if done unhealthy. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So you kind of got into that. So let's go through trauma egg real quick. And mm-hmm. so trauma egg is something that we use, um, in the CSAT world that I'd never heard of before this. And I'd been to a bunch of trauma trainings. Um, but it kind of helps put a very pretty picture of how yeah. family systems problems can permeate through all kinds of messages. So just explain what that is. It's literally an egg. Um, I, I love a trauma egg. Um, it's, it's literally an egg. And the way that I've had my clients at that point, patients, because it was residential, do it is, is draw it on a butcher sheet of paper. That's how we did it at our trainings that we did for CSAP. Draw it on a butcher sheet of paper. You draw it an egg. And then within that egg, the best way I know how to describe it is you draw different cells. And within that, it's just a picture. Um, I really encouraged the people I worked with to not write any words mm-hmm. unless they absolutely had to. Um, but just draw a picture of, I would tell them a traumatic event or an event that you experienced a lot of impact from. Because like we've talked about, some people will say, I don't have any trauma. I worked with someone that was active duty military and he's like, I don't have any trauma. It's like, right. okay, bud, Like, let's just say what, you know, you had some impact. <laughs> and so just draw those cells and by encouragement, I think the technical rules are to stop at early adulthood. I'd encourage them just to do it all the way up to whenever they're presenting it to me. Yeah. That's um, what I do too. Yeah. But it starts at birth up. Um, so it's even things that you may not remember or know about, but have been told to you. So that's the actual egg. And then on the outside of the egg, you have your family rules and your family roles. Um, and, and both of those things can be overt or covert. So what I mean by that is the family rule, for example, could be very direct, make good grades in school, Scotty, right? Or it could be, don't talk to your dad when he's been drinking. So that may be more covert, not spoken. Everyone knows it. Yeah. The family rules are the same thing. So 
that may be, uh, you know, you're the athlete of the family. You do really well in sports and your brother's the bookworm. And so that one may be very directly spoken. Whereas the overt may be, let's use that example of parentification of I'm the second dad mm-hmm. or I'm, um, you know, I'm the caretaker. Yeah. We don't talk about our problems. We right. don't share with neighbors. We, you know, right. Keep it in the family. Yeah. Um, so overt or covert, either of those things. And then at the bottom, um, it, you go through the characteristics of mom and dad. Um, or I'll say primary caregivers because that's not the story for everyone. Right. And so go through uh, characteristics of primary caregivers, give a few of those. Oh, man, that part takes people a while. And I'm mean, <laughs> and I don't tell them this, but once they go through it, it, my secret's getting out, is I ask them to then put a little mark by the characteristics they identify with Ooh, themselves. That's good. And so... I'm going to start stealing that. Oh, my goodness. I have had people get so angry with me at it. Um, so what you mean also, by characteristics are, so you write at the bottom of the egg, mom and dad, and then you write words that are positive loving. and negative. Yeah. 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 Yep. I just say, write what you think. Mm-hmm. Right. I try not to quantify. So loving worker, distant, um, overly emotional, selfish, selfish. Yeah. yeah. And so again, the, the person that's doing it doesn't know I'm going to say, I want you to identify these things. And it allows them to look at themselves through the system's lens without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the trauma egg as a whole. And then the individual gives a family motto. And that's going to be kind of this overarching, like, marching theme that they had through their life. Um, so, you know, it may be keep it in the family. Mm-hmm. Right? That may be a, an overarching motto within the family. Or... Um, we, I've had so many centering around religion, um, like, uh, especially individuals that have struggled with homosexuality. It literally may be like, pray the gay away, right? Right. Maybe that overarching motto. So it's whatever it is that, that they had all the time growing up. Right. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to look at it. So in summary, we're kind of summarizing all the things we talked right. about with the trauma egg. It's looking at the, the role, the, the characteristics that you perceived as your mother and father Mm -hmm. as an adult finally looking and going okay my parents were very nuanced they were good and bad Mm -hmm. and then writing those down and being surprised by how many good things or how many bad things or how many lack thereof Mm -hmm. looking at your your trauma over the course of your life inside this egg looking at the rules that were laid out for you that were implicit or explicit Mm -hmm. and then looking at the roles that you kind of played in the family you're the golden child you're the black sheep whatever that is right scapegoat and it's yeah it's amazing how the family motto usually encompasses all of that really well right you know you're like oh of course that's your family motto like look at your life right i would even sometimes have them not do the family motto and then allow the group because I did a lot of group work mm-hmm. and they would present it at a group, allow the group to come up with the family oh, motto for them. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> um, just based on what they heard, because again, it allows them, that person's coming in there and that trauma egg is normal for them. And that allows them to have other people speak into their lives and say, here's what I'm hearing and here's what I'm what I heard is your experience to allow people into that experience with them. With the trauma egg, something else that I like is... A lot of the times with the trauma, I'll ask the questions of, you know, where were mom and dad, um, especially if, if they weren't a part of that specific story. And also it allows the person to see, okay, here are heroes, right? 
that have been in my life that have been supportive because I do think a trauma egg and talking about everything that we've talked about today is overwhelming, is exhausting, is difficult, um, you know, can feel like you're stuck in a rut. And also it's worth looking at through that specific assignment. Okay, there have been people and there have been messages that do feel empowering, that do create resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also being able to find those in your system as well and not just those things that maybe brought you to therapy in the first place. Yeah, and there's the money egg and then is it the angel egg? Is that, yeah. Yes. That's Have really you ever done one of those? Yes. Uh-huh. I mean, I did mine, but other than that. Like, oh, I did it with a group. Okay. That's I worked awesome. Christmas one year and um, that's what I did with a group. And for me as a therapist, it, it's really fun to be able to see people connect with that part as well. Um, because I think, I don't know if you've heard this, but it's, you know, constantly, Olivia, why are you always making me cry? Well, oh, I'm not yeah. making you do anything. That's yeah. you, you know, and so we have being a running joke in my, my in my group. They call me an a hole. So you know, halfway through the group, they're like, "Well, you're being, you know, you're yeah. being this." And I'm like, and the new guys are like, "Well, I, this guy literally told me this week in individual session, he was like, he was like, you haven't been that way with me, man.' He was like, you know, I've seen you four or Just five wait. times. And <laughs> and I, and what they mean is, is they cry, right? right? They get vulnerable, and I quote unquote, I make them do that. You know, uh-huh. and it's like, no, like I'm just giving you empathy and connecting with you yeah. and validating you. And that makes you cry, we which you don't that I like. Put, like, like I'd make dash marks on my desk on how many men I'd make cry. <laughs> right. And I had a couple look at, I had one. That's hilarious. Yeah. Right before I moved back, I was working with him and he looked at, I had him sitting on the floor in a fetal position and we were doing some sculpting and he, I said something and he looked at me and he was like, why do you remember everything right. you know and it is it's just being able to to bring those pieces where they need to be and the trauma help egg helps for me as the therapist know those parts of themselves so that in the next future sessions as they're doing things I can bring that part out in order to help heal that part That's right so it may be really really painful for that individual and also I'm not doing them any favors by keeping that to myself and them keeping that to themselves if we aren't working on healing it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's just being able to bring that back out. That's awesome. I appreciate all your information. This two hours flew. So I love talking about this stuff. I do too. This is great. Um, Any kind of closing thoughts or comments that you'd like people to know or that you got? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I would say I, I alluded to this some, but I think thinking about these things and hearing these things can feel, um, really scary and a lot of people have some pretty strong loyalty to their families and what I would want people to know is that it's okay to be where you are right like you don't have to be somewhere else in order to do something different it's okay to be where you are and if hearing this feels scary or overwhelming or you know fill in the blank for painful fill in the blank it's also okay to talk to someone even if that someone is a completely third-party outsider you know reach out because ultimately in your story you aren't alone and that's the big thing that I want to convey to a lot of people and and really to anyone that I'm working with is you aren't alone in your journey you may feel that way and you just may be by yourself but you aren't alone in it that's good um and so just being able to reach out and, and touch base that way is, I have found very healing for myself. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say just in closing, what I want people to hear is, you know, this is not the blame game for no. our parents, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the, we don't want people to be victims. We right. don't want people to live in a state in which they 
they blame their parents, they blame their their ethnicity, they blame their culture, they blame everything is the problem. But we do want people to honor that those systems did add to the complexity right. in which they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And as they take responsibility for the things they need to take responsibility and shuck responsibility for the things they need to give to someone else, mm-hmm. they find freedom, they find the ability to go, okay, here's my boundary. This is what I'm responsible for now moving forward now that I know this information. Mm-hmm. I can now say, oh, no, this is on me, or, well, this happened to me and caused this, so that's not on me. Right. And there's just a, a dance that you have to do. And so if you don't go back and really see systemically where these things came from, whether that's racism, whether that's policing, whether that's politics, whether that's all the things we're dealing with, if we don't ask why, if we don't get to the root cause, then we can't. We just treat symptoms all the time, right? And we just put band-aids over bullet holes and try to try to repair and repair and repair. And then in crisis and stress, we're right back down to that childhood response, right? And everybody around us is like, "Why are you acting crazy? Or why are you doing this?" And we're never connecting the dots, and mm-hmm. we never have any control. Well, and I would say too, you said this earlier, and it was just really quick, and it's such a good statement. I I, I use it often, but you aren't the problem. The problem's the problem, right? Right, and so. Your, par- your parents aren't the problem. Your, your way that you're reacting in your workplace isn't the pro- The problem is the problem, right? You're you. Um, mm-hmm. And there are unique ways for you to manage that. And also there are some that aren't going to be so unique. Um, but ultimately, the person isn't the problem. The problem's the problem. It's good. Yeah. It's like, you know, God gives us our worth and value. And that's that we're loved and mm-hmm. we're valued and we're worthy and we're secure in his care. And that's not determined by how good our boundaries are, how bad our attachment style is. We are us. We're in our bodies. Right. We're who we are. We're worth it right now in our worst situations. However, that doesn't mean keep being unhealthy, keep being toxic. Right. It means that you have the ability to, to heal and grow. So that's right. good. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, this um, was fun. Yeah, me too. I had a great time. All right, guys. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, thanks for listening to Episode 11, Asking Why Podcast.